Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Today I want to talk about therapist competence, you know, whether or not a therapist is competent enough to be doing what they're doing. And also I want to talk about some of the infighting that happens within my field of psychotherapy and counseling and all the other areas. Many of us fight with each other about who is competent to provide what, you know, the various forms of therapy there are. Psychologists want the ability to prescribe, for instance, but psychiatrists will fight against that, claiming that psychologists are not competent to prescribe meds. Child specialists, people who specialize in working with children, they want the ability to use art with their clients or play with their clients. But registered art therapists and registered play therapists might fight against that, again, claiming that without those training areas, they're not competent to use art or to use play. Some counselors who aren't trained in marriage and family therapy, they want to see couples, but Marriage and family therapists, like myself, might fight against that. Incidentally, I don't think I would. But but many marriage and family therapists will claim that you need to be a marriage and family therapist to, to see couples and families. And this, this list of infighting goes on and on and on. There's just so much fighting. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I'm going to talk about competence. I'm going to talk about the ethics involved. I'm going to talk about... How, you know, I'll talk, I'll introduce some ideas about how we measure competence and I'll get into some of the specific fights that are happening right now within our field and talk about some of the legal stuff. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and I'm also a professor this episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, I have to severely apologize because this episode will end before the content begins. But if you want to hear the full episode, all you got to do is go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of premium episodes like this one. And also remember that a portion of all the monthly pledges goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. First off, I just want to say as a caveat that the topic of competence in the field of psychotherapy is just too broad for one episode. So I thought I would talk about a few different areas regarding competence rather than talking about the entire concept. So I just want to say that as a caveat, because I think there's some really interesting examples. For instance, I received this email from a patron. She wrote, I am a registered provisional psychologist. I found your podcast when I was searching for more information on sand play therapy last April, and I have been hooked ever since. While I was listening to your malpractice podcast this morning, you said that a professional does not need to be certified to be good at play therapy. You then said that you don't necessarily need any training. You said if you work with children, you will learn how to do play therapy. This is, in my opinion, absolutely not true. Without training in play therapy, you cannot say that you have competence in play therapy. The reason I get all soapboxy is that untrained therapists working with vulnerable children 
stating that they do play, play therapy are at risk of harming a child. I have received cases from those who are not properly trained yet saying they are practicing play therapy, and these children often display increased symptoms instead of decreased, and the parents believe that they have been ripped off. I agree that professionals do not need to be certified in order to be competent in things such as play therapy, sand play therapy, EMDR, sex therapy, etc. But there does need to be training. I think it can be worrisome to say that professionals can be competent without training, especially because some of your listeners are not therapists and may be seeking therapy. Okay, my rant is over. Thank you for all that you do. I truly appreciate all the work you put into this podcast. End quote. Yeah, thanks, patron, for writing in. I agree. Uh, let me just ramble about this. I, I don't remember what I said, but if that's what I said, then yeah, I, I agree that I was wrong. You know, I say a lot of things on this podcast off the top of my head and Sometimes I don't word things quite right or I don't emphasize things enough, but um, let me go into this a little bit. Yes, you absolutely need training and supervision and experience and blah, blah, blah to become a competent therapist who uses play as a modality in addition to all the other modalities. Absolutely. But you don't need training specifically in play therapy. Let me explain. For example, and that's why... I, I don't remember what I said in that podcast, but uh, if I said something like, you don't need training in play therapy to do play therapy, uh, I think what I was meaning was you need training in working with kids. And, you, and, you, and the training doesn't necessarily have to... Well, let, let, me, let me give an example here. So, for example, I've never taken a course, me, myself, I've never taken a course in play therapy. Never. Not a single course in play therapy. And I have used play with children. I've been a therapist for 20 years, and I've seen thousands of children, and I've used play with all of them. There's just no other way to work with kids other than to use play. And I have evidence that my use of play has been successful in helping clients. Now, I haven't taken a course in play therapy, but... I have taken several courses in general psychotherapy and in family therapy and in child therapy and, and so on, systemic therapy, da-da-da. None of these courses were considered to be courses in play therapy, and none of them would be considered courses within a play therapy curriculum. But many of these courses discussed how to use play with children, particularly when I was at my internship and being supervised. That's probably half of what we talked about, but that was, and that wasn't even a course. That was just, that was just being supervised by someone who had a lot of experience working with kids. So, so not only have I never taken a course in play therapy, but my main training in play therapy happened outside of the classroom. So, and it should be noted that those supervisors who supervised me working with kids, none of them were play therapists. None of them were certified in play therapy. And I'm guessing that none of them had even taken a course in play therapy because play therapy courses aren't extremely common. You know, it's the same as using art in therapy. I've never taken a course in art therapy, but I have used art with my clients. For example, I once had a client who could not really tolerate or wasn't old enough 
to tolerate talking and therapy. And we figured out that she loved to draw pictures. She just loved to draw. So that's what we did all, that's what we did all session. We drew pictures and we talked about her drawings in particular. This is how we work together. Is this art therapy? I don't know. Not technically, because I've never been trained in art therapy. Therefore, I can't do art therapy. But I'm confident in my ability to use art in therapy, as in this example. Now, this isn't to say that people don't need training, because people absolutely need training, a lot of training. In fact, I would assert that our master's programs and our doctoral programs are just the beginning of the training that we need in this field. For me, 99% of what I've learned about this profession has happened outside of my master's and outside of my doctorate. So yes, we absolutely need tons of training in the work that we do. So I'm not saying we don't need training, but I am saying, what I am saying is that there is more than one possible path to become competent. To become competent in using play with child clients, you don't have to take courses in play therapy. That. That's my point. There are many other paths. So that's my position. So if I said you don't need training and play therapy to use play with, with clients, that's probably what I meant. Because I've never taken a course in play therapy. I've never been trained in play therapy. But I absolutely, early in my career, was competent in using play with my clients. And I don't just say... I was competent without, you know, knowing what I'm saying there. I'm, I, I, I'm not just saying that I'm competent because I said so. <laughs> I'm, I'm competent because I was observed by supervisors who, who commented on my work and fine-tuned my work and told me where I was making mistakes and told me what I should, you know, continue doing. I used play with many clients and would check in on the treatment plan to see how things are going and would see success in a number of clients in those areas. I would have kids, children, clients who would say they really liked coming to therapy and really felt as though therapy was even helping them at times. I have talked with play therapists about this sort of thing and, you know, they'll sort of check off on my work. And so, but that was late. I didn't really meet the whole thing about play therapy is I wasn't even really aware of it being a certified program or a, or a registration, you know, you can become a, a registered in case you don't know. So there's, there's six main professions in our field. You got, you got marriage and family therapists, which is what I am. You have mental health counselors, you have psychologists, you have social workers, you have psychiatrists and you have uh, uh, psychiatric nurses and all of those people can become registered play therapists. So just as you can be also become a registered uh, art therapist or a registered or a certified sex therapist. So all these are, are add-ons to any of the professions. And so I didn't even know it was an add-on until later in my career because at the beginning of my career, I, I worked at a youth and family service agency in which all of us did, you know, I, I hesitate to use the phrase play therapy. We called it play therapy, but of course, certified or registered or trained, specifically trained play therapists today will say you can't use that phrase. It's sort of like back in the day when the word psychologist was used by a lot of people and then eventually uh, people with a very specific training started 
monopolizing the term psychologist. It, it's also it's similar in my industry, actually, marriage and family therapy. We are the only out of all of them that are called therapists. And so we, to some extent, have begun to monopolize the word therapist. And then mental health counselors, they're called counselors. Now, of course, everyone outside of our industry could care less about these this nitpicking, you know. I My clients will call me a counselor. They'll call me a therapist. The one thing I don't want to be called is a coach because that's an area that is emerging that I, although respect on some level, have some issues with, and I certainly don't want to be thought of as a coach. I want to be thought of as a, as a clinician and coaches aren't clinicians, but anyway, and they don't claim to be clinicians or at least they, they, they shouldn't claim and the good ones don't claim. Anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole, but, um, what am I saying? All right. So Tim, now some of you might be thinking, well, Kirk, you're just spouting off about play therapy. No, what was, I was talking about something about play therapy. Yeah. So, so yeah. Okay. Now I'm remembering <laughs> at the beginning of my career for the first five or 10 years, I worked in youth and family service agencies of at various capacities. And a lot of all of our, I worked alongside a lot of therapists and all of us, most of our clients were kids and we called ourselves, we didn't call ourselves play therapists, but we called what we did play therapy. The phrase play therapy, as with art therapy or possibly even sex therapy, these are starting to become, I don't know the term, but like professionalized terms that only can be used by certified people. And so that's why I'm not using the term play therapy, but we thought of ourselves as using play therapy. But the phrase that I hear people using now for non-play therapist is using play in therapy. It's the same with art therapy. I don't, I don't do art therapy. I use art in therapy. It's sort of like assistant to the regional manager or something. But anyway, and, and I don't, I don't have a problem with this language. I don't have a problem with this languaging. I, I just am, expressing how it works out. <laughs> it just gets a little pedantic sometimes. And again, to people outside of our industry, they could care less because they don't even understand the difference between a psychiatrist and what I do. And so, um, so this is all just in, in industry issues. You know, it's sort of be like if I learn somehow that cooks, and, and actually I, I do know enough about, about restaurants because I used to work in a lot of restaurants when I was much younger and there's this whole cook, chef, sous chef world. I also had a close friend who was high up in the fine dining uh, industry in Seattle. And they have a whole other way of thinking about that. The ranking of, you know, head chef and the menu chef and the sous chef and the, the, the grill chef, there's a grill chef, there's a grill cook. That's a very specialized and there's all these rankings of who is who. And of course to us or for me, when I go to a restaurant, I don't care. It's like, just bring me my food. <laughs> you know. And that's how clients are. Like, I don't care what you call yourself. Just, just help me out. You know, anyway. So, uh, now some of you might be saying, okay, Kirk, you're just making this stuff up. You know, how, how do you know any of this stuff about play therapy? Of course, because you're not a play therapist, you're going to, you're going to claim all sorts of stuff about play therapy. Well, to make sure I wasn't completely off base, I emailed a number of people uh, who are on the 
Association for Play Therapy website. I think it's the Association of Play Therapy. Uh, I talked to D. Ray. Her name is D. Ray. Very uh, short name, <laughs> a short syllable name. Um, and she's an expert on play therapy. And she said, hi, Kirk. Thanks for asking. In my opinion, competency is about training and quality of training. Certification typically ensures training hours, but fails to account for the quality of that training. Hence, we have many play therapists that may be certified, but may not be well-trained. And alternatively, and alternately, I know that there are competent, well-trained play therapists who are not, who are not certified. This is also common for most mental health licenses and certifications. I like to fall back on the ethics which state that counselors should be trained in the areas and issues with which they work. In the end, I support certification of play therapists because some therapists call themselves play therapists even though they even though they have never been trained. Even though they have never been trained, they call themselves play therapists. Yeah. End quote. Yeah, I can I completely agree with D Ray, especially when she writes I like to fall back on the ethics which state that counselors should be trained in the areas and issues with which they work, unquote. Yeah, I completely agree with that. If you, if you want to use play with children, then becoming a certified or registered play therapist will likely provide you with training and experience and supervision and other things that you need to use play in therapy. But if you don't want to become a certified or registered play therapist, there are other ways to become competent in using play with children. But as with myself, you probably shouldn't call yourself a play therapist. I don't call myself a play therapist. Incidentally, I should mention that I haven't seen a child as a client for a number of years. Currently, my practice is half couples and half adult individuals. But like I said at the beginning of my career... I would say about half of my clients were children under 13, and I always used play with them. I even had clients who were four and three. Uh, how you the, the thing that I just like to say is, are you going to sit down with a five-year-old and they're going to talk about their mother and that, that's what therapy is going to be? You know, you're going to get down on the ground. You're going to play. And, and Using play and therapy is, I just want to go on a little jag here. Using play and therapy is actually extremely complicated. It's not simply playing with a kid. It involves understanding the development of children fairly well, understanding what's typical or what's the typical range of behaviors uh, for kids. It's, it's having toys. It's having games. It's having an office in which a child can fall down and not, and not brain themselves on a sharp corner. It involves knowing how to corral kids. Cause you, you imagine you're in a, especially for family therapists like myself, you could be in a room with five kids. You have to know how to, how to direct five kids. You have to know how to keep their attention. You have to know the way they, that they have to be spoken to and how they have to be, you know, even physically intervened with. Cause if one of them starts, punching another one, you know, depending on the situation, you might want to stop that. And so just knowing how to, to do those things, it's, it's all very different than just sitting in a chair and talking with an adult. You, you have to, but the main thing you have to know, which is something that I help my supervisees with 
is knowing how to have a goal because you, you have to have a goal with play therapy. You can't just sit down and say, I'm just going to play with a kid. There has to be some goal. And the, the goal can be rather specific, like I'm going to help to reduce this child's depressive episode or depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms. So it can be very concrete like that. Or it could just be quite broad, like I'm going to help this child with emotional regulation or with self-esteem or with identity or recover from grief after losing both their parents or something. So there needs to be some goal. And then you need to know how to utilize play. Is utilize the right word? I've heard recently that the word use and utilize have very specific meanings that I'm not quite sure on. But anyway, (laughs) um, you have to know how to use play and how to read play with kids. So for instance, you're playing with a kid and you have a goal of trying to help them grieve the loss of their parents. Well, most kids Uh, depending on the situation, at least initially, are not going to be comfortable with you just asking them how they feel about their parents. You know, they might be fine with the question, but they, they probably won't be able to talk very much about it. They, in fact, most kids say, you know, seven years old ish will just say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm fine. Whatever. They'll just not because they're being a dick, but just because they just don't have the language and, and they're not used to talking about things and their brain isn't developed to the point where they can string together long soliloquies about how they're feeling. And so you get down on the ground and you start playing and you might pull out some puppets and kids love to pretend, right? And so once they feel comfortable with you, they they might start pretending, you know, and they'll have a little dinosaur person and then they'll have like Ernie and Bert and, and Big Bird and whatever. And, and, and you get down in there with them and you start, you start pretending with them and you, you just, you get into their world, into their play world, which could be very specific depending on the kid. And as that kid is playing, you're, you're getting, you're not, you're not doing anything yet. You're trying to avoid interfering, but you want to add because you want to be in there. So you're adding, but you're not, you're trying not to interfere. You're trying not to impose your way of playing on them. You're trying to let them explore and you're trying to get to know their, the, the way that they play and the way that they express themselves through play. And over time, and it could take literally months, if not years to figure this out. This is why a lot of people avoid play therapy with kids and child therapy in general is because it could take a long time just to begin to take a guess as to what is going on inside this child's mind. You know, uh, it could, I talk with a lot of novice therapists and what I tell them is get down on the ground and start playing and don't even ask yourself about, don't even try to figure out what's going on until you've played with that child for 10 plus sessions. The first 10 sessions, you're just playing, you're just getting to know each other, you're building rapport, and you're, you're getting an intuitive sense of their inner world that they're expressing through play. It takes a long time to figure that out. You can't just jump right in and assume things. It's the same for art in therapy and all, you know. But anyway, so you get a sense for 
what the and and there's no there's no book you're going to read there's no handout or test that can test you on this in terms of your your ability to intuit the inner life of a child upon playing with them for a number of hours there there's no way to train that into you in my opinion you as a human being just have to put in those hours you just have to get to know how that works and and also tap into your own symbolic world and the and the way you perhaps played when you were a kid when you were a kid and so anyway you get down on the ground you start playing you're you're, you're you know you're getting into their world and then only upon having a pretty good intuitive sense of what's happening for this child that's when you actually can start intervening with things and the way you intervene is through that play. You don't you don't necessarily talk about it. Now you can talk about it. You can't just say it kind of feels like the Tyrannosaurus Rex is your your mother. It kind of is that true? And then if the kid's old enough, they might say, "Yeah, my mom kind of was a Tyrannosaurus Rex." Now, you know, so that's all an option. But short of that and perhaps superior to that is to you know, live within the world of play and intervene in that way. Just as a very crude example, if if a child had been physically abused by his mother and and you felt as though the Tyrannosaurus Rex was a representation of his mother, then and the Tyrannosaurus Rex was was terrorizing, you know, Bert and Ernie, then as an intervention after only after you get a sense of that this is act, that you think this is what's happening you might want to switch roles and and you take the Tyrannosaurus Rex the child takes Bert and Ernie and then it you allow Bert and Ernie to gain power in that interaction with the Tyrannosaurus Rex now that's a very crude example but it could help with self-esteem, it could help with safety, it could help with being assertive, it could help with justice for the child in terms of allowing Bert and Ernie to fight back against against the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, in those situations, is that is, is that what you're supposed to do every single time? Absolutely not. That's the art of therapy. That's the beauty of therapy. There are so many options, and it's it's based on your intuition, it's based on your training, it's based on consultation. It's based on the goals. It's based on responses from the client. Da da da. It's based on you asking the parents how are they doing at home. Blah blah blah. So anyway, that that's what I mean by play therapy. Why was I explaining play therapy to people? Um. Uh, I guess I just decided to kind of do that. <laughs> um, and yeah, when I did it as a younger therapist, I loved it. I, I remember one client. It was two siblings, actually, the brother and sister, and we would play for hours, and we would laugh and and laugh and laugh. I remember one session in which we turned my entire office into one big fort, and we were we were crawling around and jumping up on top of tables, and we were pretending we were defending a castle or something. It was a blast, and that session was twenty years ago, and I still remember it. So. So anyway, that's what D. Ray said. You know, she's she's saying, and again, I'll just kind of highlight. She said certification typically ensures training hours, but fails to account for the quality of training. Hence, we have many play therapists who may be certified, 
but may not be well-trained. And alternately, I know there are competent, well-trained play therapists who are not certified. So certification is one way to ensure competence, but it's not a guarantee. And if you're not certified, that, that's not necessarily an indication that you're not competent. So I also emailed with Debbie Campbell, who is also with the Association of Play Therapy, and she said, I agree with your observation and would say that one can definitely be a competent play therapist without being a registered play therapist. The contributions of many of the founders of play therapy approaches would likely not have a credential. So I didn't read that sentence quite right, but it's, but she's just saying that the founders of play therapy were not certified play therapists. So how did, how did the founders of play therapy become competent in play therapy? Anyway, but their education and experience over time helped lay the groundwork for what is now a formal credentialing process. That being said, Credentialing has an important role, particularly in this time when anyone who has a license to provide mental health services can claim to practice a number of therapeutic approaches to treat a milieu of mental health issues. So just chiming in here. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's actually really weird because in the medical field, if, if you have a, you know, a podiatrist, I think they call them, when you're a, a foot doctor, you wouldn't go to a foot doctor if you had a headache, right? Or if you had depression, you wouldn't go to a foot doctor. If you had a problem with your foot, you'd go to a foot doctor. Ear, nose, and throat person, you know, ear, nose, and they specialize in more than just ear, nose, and throat, but it's, you know, you have psychiatrists, you have surgeons, you have OBGYNs, you know, you have all these specialties within the medical profession. But somehow in my field, when you become a you know mental health professional, even a marriage and family therapist, it, it's hard to know what you're specializing in because marriage and family therapists are trained to work with individuals too and are trained in, in group therapy often or at least have ex supervised experience in group therapy. And it's hard to know who you're supposed to go to. And so as as uh, Debbie Campbell from Association of Play Therapy is saying, she, she's saying, you know, we live in a time when just because you have a license in any of the professions, you can claim that you're good at everything. You're good at diagnosing. You're, you're good at working with kids. You're good at working with addictions. You're good at working with elderly people and ADHD and anxiety and depression. And there's just too many things to do in this field to say that you can do it all. And so registration and certification and specific training and certification that you've been trained kind of helps us and the public kind of sift through all that. So um, she goes on, a credential says that a practitioner has participated in an established amount of education and supervised experience in that, in that particular area. With that, one would hope that there is also an additional level of competency to match the education and experience, although that is not always the case. All right. So, yeah, uh, I, th I think they're all basically agreeing with me in that how, you know, the, the baseline of determining competence is a very squishy measure, by the way, because there's no, there's no, because, because even when they try to devise tests 
and there are tests to get to become licensed, they'll do they'll do research on those tests and find that they're not associated with outcomes very well. You know, like the GRE, for instance, we don't require the GRE in our master's program, even though most master's programs require some form of standardized tests like the GRE, because research shows that, you know, a higher score on the GRE does not make you a better therapist. So why would we require a GRE when the GRE is just going to eliminate a group of people from applying or being accepted in, from this total arbitrary thing. And so it's really hard to test competence in the, in this field. It's, it's hard to even, even measure whether or not our field is even worth it, let alone any individual practitioner is good at what they do because outcomes are just so squishy. And there's so many other factors that go into outcomes like circumstance and whether or not the client actually wants to be in therapy and just so many other things. And so it's really hard to know, but in general, we try to define competence or, or most of us agree that competence is training and experience, and particularly supervised experience, meaning that someone is watching you do a thing that is an expert in that thing and is commenting on whether or not you're good enough to do that thing on your own at, at some point. So for instance... I, I supervise interns, and in their first month, they will see clients for the very first time. You know, every, every therapist has a, has a session in which they're on their own for the first time. Are they competent to be a therapist at that point? Uh, I, you know, I, I would say I was not competent for the first number of months in which I was a therapist. But I was closely supervised, so uh, you know it, it's it's that's it's anyway. The point is is that we measure competence through adequate training, you know, you, whatever that means, and that's a very squishy topic too. And through adequate supervised experience and and other kinds of experience. Anyway, so. I want to pose a question regarding this, you know, sort of thing, because uh, there's a debate in my mind on both sides, what sort of world we would like to live in. Would, would you like to live in a world in which all the various forms of therapy require strict certification? Or would you like to live in a world in which therapists are free to decide for themselves if they are competent enough to use a particular form of therapy? So would you like to live in a very structured world in which there are very strict rules on who can do what? Or would you like to live in a world in which there's more flexibility regarding that? Regarding the structured certification world, there's pros and cons. The pros are is that in a certification world, it increases the likelihood that clinicians are competent in that area. And it also gives the public more confidence that they are seeing a competent professional because if they're going to see a registered play therapist, then they, they'll have more confidence that this person knows what they're doing when it comes to using play and therapy. But living in a certification world would prohibit some therapists from using a form of therapy that they are actually competent using but just aren't certified in yet. 
Also, another con is a certification world would require all of us to be perpetually in school (laughs) unless we were cool with limiting ourselves to a corner of the population. So, so those are the cons. So there, there's pros, there's definite pros to the certification world, but there are some cons. All right, what about the freedom world? Freedom world. Freedom world, that reminds me of Freedom Rock. Who's old enough to remember those commercials? The pros of the freedom world, the non-certification world, is that therapists don't have to be constantly in school. and I'll say they don't have to take unnecessary schooling. I'll just put it that way. And another pro is we are free to use the actual evidence rather than following rules that may or may not indicate competence. So in the freedom world, we someone can say, I have, I've taken, you know, two courses that touched upon using play and therapy, but the two courses were not on play therapy specifically. I have a supervisor who has used play and therapy for 20 years and she's closely monitoring my work. And at the end of that year, can you call yourself of that internship? Can you call yourself competent as a, as, as someone who uses play with therapy, play and therapy, I, you know, it's, it's quite possible. And so, uh, the, the therapist can actually look to their clients to see if, their use of play is actually working and not harming their clients. They can actually use that direct evidence to to gauge whether or not they were competent. That's how I gauged my competence. I I looked at what was actually happening to see if my use of play went over well, to see if it harmed anyone, to see if it actually helped the clients and the families reach their goals. That's how I gauged whether or not my training and my supervised training actually was effective in making me competent in using play with their play and therapy. So, so in a, in a freedom world, the pro is, is that it allows for that flexible process, but the freedom world, uh, because, uh, it lacks a structure for evaluating competence. It doesn't have a, a written structure it's harder to evaluate whether or not we are competent. So we might think we're competent when in reality we're not. Also, the freedom world, uh, within a freedom world, some clinicians will use therapies that they're not actually competent in. Also, uh, for example, I've talked about malpractice cases in which some clinicians are clearly not competent, specifically using play with clients, and yet they were completely free to practice using play with therapy. I don't know if you you remember back far enough, but there was a case, a malpractice case I talked about in which this um, therapist, without any training in, in using play and therapy, I think called herself a play therapist and just butchered play therapy and then got sued successfully. And so anyway... As our progression, as our as our profession has progressed, uh, incidentally, in my opinion, we seem to be uh, heading toward more certifications and more registrations and more requirements to be certified to see certain kind of clients and to use certain kinds of therapies. On one hand, this is great. Uh, as I said earlier, you don't want to go to a foot doctor and ask them about 
your intestines, right? Um, so on one hand, it's great because then we can all sort of make sure we're competent and certified in that area. And then, and then, you know, we'll, we can just sort of stick to that kind of therapy. But on the other hand, this is sort of scary to me, actually. Let me give an example. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, which means I have been specifically trained in couple therapy. However, the vast majority of therapists have not taken a single course in couple therapy like the way marriage and family therapists have. Psychologists are not likely to have taken a course in couple therapy, maybe one. Uh, Counselors don't take courses in couple therapy. Social workers don't necessarily take courses in couple therapy. Does that mean that Uh, people like me, licensed marriage and family therapists, does that mean that we are the only therapists who can see couples? I don't think so. I know a number of non-marriage and family therapists who are excellent in working with couples, but they've never taken a course in couple therapy. How did they become competent? In general, among the people I know, they sought consultation from a couple's therapist. For example, a colleague of mine, she hired me for a number of years to help her with a few things, but but really mainly to help her with her couple clients. She recognized she wanted to work with couples, but she also recognized she had never taken a course in couple therapy. And it, pretty quickly, I realized that she is excellent working with couples. So when we start imposing rules upon our profession that defined who is competent and who is not, I get scared that these rules will limit us to very particular paths of gaining that competence. So if, if we made a rule that only marriage and family therapists could see, could see couples, then it eliminates that path of competence that I've seen other people take. If we limit the use of play in therapy to only registered or certified play therapists then we eliminate the flexibility in which can allow for someone like me to become competent in using play with clients uh, that doesn't follow that, that very specific training uh, certification process. And if you know the podcast well enough, you know that I'm generally biased against rules in general. So, if I had it my way, we would, we would remain mostly free to find our own paths to competence because there are many paths to becoming competent, in my opinion. But we would, as a, in, I, I would like our profession to be more buttoned up about making sure that people understand what competence means exactly. Because I can tell you from experience that many people, you know, they graduate from their master's program and they just they just want to believe that they're competent in a particular area and they just start doing it. And, you know, it's sort of like with parenting advice, parent giving advice to parents or helping parents with their parenting is a very specific skill. And just because you're a therapist doesn't mean that you're good at that. So now I'm not, I don't recommend we have certified parenting therapists but I do recommend that we make sure everyone understands that there are, partic- there are some topics that are, that are very complicated, and unless you have a robust understanding of it, you probably shouldn't go very deep into it. Another area is trauma therapy, and I learned this one the hard way. 
I, I was told and I believed that just because I had a master's, uh, this is before I had my doctorate, I was I was told basically, and I believed that just because I had a master's that I could treat people with trauma. This notion is begin is beginning to be dispelled, kind of in my field, but but there are I would say I would say the vast majority of mental health clinicians believe they know how to treat trauma, but I can tell you from my own personal experience, unless you have very specialized training and experience, you probably are not, you're not only not competent, you're, but you're probably harming your clients. The way I did when I was first starting out, I thought that trauma meant that you just asked the client to tell you about the trauma and then you just proceeded to listen non-judgmentally. But that can actually backfire and harm clients. And so and and I experienced that in my early in my early career. I would just a client would say, you know, I have I have, I've been se- I was sexually abused when I was a child, and I've never told anybody before. And I would say, oh, and I would be very empathetic, and I'd be very non-judgmental, and I'd be very compassionate, I'd be very caring. But I would also say, if you want to tell me the story, go ahead, tell you know, tell me whatever you want to. You don't have to, but if if you feel like it would help, tell me. And then they would proceed to tell me, and then they would re-traumatize themselves through their trauma reaction, and then they would never come back to therapy again. And so a certification process could help with that, but I think more importantly, we need to, and, I'm, and I've been trying to, spread the word that that notion that I had, is, if you have that notion, you need to get rid of it, because it, it, you're going to harm your clients in the way I did when I first started out. Anyway. So I just want to conclude with a few things. One is I want to talk about some of the specific areas within my field who are fighting. <laughs> you know, I've already talked about the, you know, play therapists versus people who use play in therapy. There's also fight between psychoanalysis and psychodynamic people and other people. <laughs> You know, can can someone call themselves a psychodynamic therapist without going through a particular psychodynamic program? For example, I call myself a psychodynamic therapist, and listeners who listen to this podcast know that I consider myself to be an expert on psychodynamic therapy. I'm not, you know, as expert as, you know, many of the authors in psychodynamic therapy, but I, I consider myself to have to have enough knowledge and experience to speak with authority on psychodynamic therapy. However, I have only taken one course in psychodynamic theory, one course in my, you know, I've I've been in this field since 95, so 22 years, one course. But I've been reading and talking and thinking and contemplating and practicing and supervising and lecturing and writing, frankly, about psychodynamic theory for 20 years. So I consider myself competent. But if there was an official certification process, I probably would have to take many of the courses that people would have to take from the beginning. I, because because the way that certification process often work is they count it by, by sort of official courses that you've taken. So since I've only taken one official course, my guess is that I would have to, if there was a certification process, I would, I would have to start from the beginning, even though 
I know from my own gauge regarding other people who consider themselves to be experts in psychodynamic therapy and in terms of my use of it with clients. Um, and in terms of, if you just look at my books, my, I, I, I've told this before. I, I have my, my book, my library is so big. It takes up an entire parking space in my garage. And I would say a quarter of the books are on psychodynamic therapy, even though the topics involved in psychology and psychotherapy, there's, you know, there's thousands of topics, but I, anyway, and I've read them all. So, <laughs> um, now, uh, like I said, there's fights between who can, now there's not a significant fight in, among psychodynamic people, but, but I've, I've heard that before. It's just, you know, cause there are certifications in that field. Anyway, I mentioned art therapy, you know, do, do you need to be registered as an art therapist to use art in therapy? Another fight that's happening is diagnosing. I talked about this in another episode in which we have the Texas marriage and family therapists fighting against the Texas medical doctors. The Texas medical doctors were trying to make it so that Texas marriage and family therapists would not have authorization to diagnose, even though marriage and family therapists are absolutely trained in diagnosing. In some ways, marriage and family therapists are, on average, I'm guessing, better at diagnosing than uh, from the DSM uh, than medical doctors, because medical doctors diagnose, you know, millions of things, and, and mental illness is just one of the things that they diagnose, whereas marriage and family therapists, the only diagnostic areas that they diagnose is within mental health. And, and particular kinds of uh, mental illnesses like anxiety, depression, PTSD, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of fighting between that. Who has, who's competent to diagnose? There's fighting regarding EMDR. You know, if, do you have to be a certified EMDR person or not? Um, I personally think you, you absolutely need training in EMDR to do it. I can't imagine someone just reading about EMDR and being able to do it. And really, it only comes down to the eye movement stuff. I, as a trauma therapist myself, when I've because I've never been through EMDR training, but when I read EMDR materials, about ninety five percent of EMDR is what I do already. It's just worded a little differently, and 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 has it's more manualized EMDR, meaning it follows particular steps that are you know very specific. So. But the eye movement thing and the, you know, that's, that's completely boggling to me. And so I would absolutely need training in, in that for sure if I was to do EMDR. Anyway, sand play therapy. Do you need to take classes that are specifically focused on sand play therapy in order to use sand plays, you know, sand trays? So that's a question I hear. Sex therapy. That's another area that people fight. Do you need to be certified as a sex therapist to provide sex therapy? I know a number of marriage and family therapists who are excellent when it comes to talking about sex with their clients, but none of them are certified as sex therapists. So you'll hear that fight. I mean, I haven't mentioned this specifically, but I think it's fairly obvious is that everyone is out for themselves or their own niche of, uh, you know, it's not like Texas medical doctors just intellectually didn't like marriage and family therapist diagnosing Texas medical doctors 
and of course I have no documentation on this, but they, 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 they probably wanted to take away the ability for marriage and family therapists and other mental health professionals for that matter, to be able to diagnose because the medical doctors wanted all those patients and they wanted all of those privileges that you get from having that, that authorization. And that's why Texas marriage and family therapists fought to retain that authorization because when you have that authorization, your job is more secure. You might even make more money. And so everyone within our field. So, so if you're a certified or a registered, I don't know the exact, term, I think it's registered play therapist. So if you're a registered play therapist and for whatever reason, Trump decided to make a law that only registered play therapists could use play in therapy, then your practice would boom because the amount of therapists that are registered as play therapists is extremely small, but the amount of people looking for play therapy is very large. And right now, just my guess is anecdotally is most of the people that most of the clients that are being treated with play are being treated by therapists who are not registered as play therapists. So if Trump made that law, suddenly all the registered play therapists would have this huge increase in demand and they would be able to charge more. And then those, those, uh, training programs that train you in play therapy would sudden, suddenly see a huge influx of students. And again, the demand would go up and therefore they could charge more. They'd make more money. And so it's, it's about money, my friend. <laughs> and uh, when you got money out there, people start fighting. And so, you know, that's, that's why you have fighting <laughs> in my opinion. So uh, another area is couple and family therapy, as I was talking about earlier can non-marriage and family therapists use, uh, you know, couple and family therapy techniques? You know, if, if I was greedy and petty, I would say, and I've heard other marriage and family therapists say this for sure, I would say that unless you're a marriage and family therapist, you can't do couples counseling and you can't do family counseling because you're not trained in it. So, I could say that. And I've heard other marriage family therapists say that, but I, but I'm not going to say that <laughs> because I just, I don't think that's right. Plus it's, it's not based on the evidence that I've seen in, in that many non marriage family therapists are, are just as competent, if not more competent than marriage and family therapist, not more competent than all. But anyway, my, my point is, is that you can, I've seen competent couple therapists who are not marriage family therapists. Another area is music therapy, you know, using music and therapy. Can you use music and therapy if you're not a, a music therapist? Um, another area that I'll end with is regarding prescribing. You know, do you have, do you have to be a medical doctor to, to be competent in prescribing medication? At first glance, you might think, of course you do. You have to be a doctor. You have to be a medical physician in order to prescribe meds. That's, that's the way the system works. But many within the psychological community would beg to differ. And I agree with them. I agree with their begging to differ. Psychologists have actually managed to get the ability to prescribe in three states, and I, I think even four states. When I got my PsyD, um, I took a bunch of classes during my PsyD on biology and the brain and even psychotropics and medications. And if I continued my training in that area, maybe another year or so, and I was supervised, 
during that time prescribing medication, I absolutely would have become competent enough to prescribe psychotropics. I mean, many primary care physicians prescribe psychotropics with very little training and experience in psychiatry. You know, your, your local pediatrician can, is authorized to prescribe Prozac, for instance, or, or Ritalin when they may not have ever taken a class on ADHD or ever been supervised in treating ADHD. So now many PCPs are trained specifically with those medications and do get supervised experience in treating those specific conditions, but they don't necessarily have to in order to have the authorization to prescribe meds. Whereas uh, psych- psychologists get a ton of experience in, in treating because for psychologists the, the, the argument goes is that in, in medicine, the model is someone comes into your office for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, you gather symptoms and you develop a treatment plan. And, you know, someone comes in with strep throat, and you run a couple tests, you diagnose it, and you give them antibiotics, and, and they go home, and you say, call me if anything changes. Well, in the world of psychology, in the world of psychotherapy, the model is very different than that. The model is you meet with them once a week, and you really get to know them, and you monitor them thoroughly, and you get you know thorough background information and you you develop a strong relationship with that client and you get to know how their symptoms are interwoven into trauma and their history and their life circumstances and culture and you know you, you get a good sense of it all and so a psychologist or even a psychotherapist with medical knowledge specific to psychiatry in some ways is better at uh, prescribing meds because they understand the whole person. Now, I'm, some psychiatrists and some medical doctors will take the time to get to know the whole person. So there's that. But, you know, uh, this generalization is, you know, generally true. That uh, for us in the mental health field, we get to know the people. We're, you know, we're, we monitor more often. We can gauge whether or not they're going to comply you know, because we see them more often. And with a little bit of medical knowledge, a little bit of psychotropic training, we actually can be better than a lot of uh, medical doctors regarding the prescribing of medication. And so that's the argument. And that's why, and so psychologists have been fighting this in various different states. And that's why three or four states allow it. In, for instance, in Louisiana, psychologists must complete an additional master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. I think that's taking a little far, but so, so psychologists, if without getting a medical degree, if they have this additional master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology, then they can start prescribing after that. In New Mexico, a psychologist who gets 450 hours of, of courses in psychopharmacology and completes a 400-hour practicum uh, beyond their doctorate, then they can also prescribe. So it's, it's not as difficult, I think, in New Mexico. In Illinois, uh, similar to New Mexico, you have to take courses in psychopharmacology, and then you must complete a 14-month practicum in which you're supervised by medical people. 
I also think in Iowa recently, they passed legislation that gives psychologists the ability to prescribe. And other states are trying to follow in their footsteps. And I hope that they do. Not because, and now I won't, I'm not interested in prescribing, so it's not, it's not a selfish thing to me. But to me, I think it's a good thing for the public. Because the more people who know how to do this well, the the more the public is able to get those services. And the more the services can be done by one person, the better. Because right now, as it is, for a lot of people, they get their medication from one person and they, they get their psychotherapy from another person. And wouldn't it be nice if one person did that? Now, of course, psychiatric nurses and psychiatrists can do both. They can provide psychotherapy and pres- prescribe medication. So we already have those people for sure. But but getting a medical degree is is pretty involved, <laughs> you know, and uh, anyway, I mean, it's not like getting a psychology degree is not involved. It takes probably just as long. Anyway, I would just like evidence-based certification and competency measurement and competency attainment. And there's no reason why a psychologist, after having getting an entire other master's in psycho, psychopharmacology, yeah, there's no reason that they can't consider themselves competent in doing this. So, anyway. In conclusion, we should all strive to make sure that we are competent to provide the therapy that we are providing. Also, we should all engage in ongoing training and consultation throughout our careers. Training and education consultation should never end throughout our career. In the effort of becoming increasingly competent in particular areas and competent in areas that we're not competent in. Also, we should do what we can to prevent incompetent therapists from harming the public or at least providing inadequate treatment. You know, I think we need to do more. At this point, we have it in our ethical codes and we have malpractice around this, but I don't think we publicize enough. I don't, my, part of the reason why I'm doing this episode is because I, I want to kind of have this conversation with myself to some extent to kind of remind myself of the principles, but also just kind of get people thinking about it in, in a nuanced way, not in a simplistic way. You know, the simplistic way is, well, if you want to do this, you have to become certified. You know, that's a, and that's, you know, that's fine. But we, I think if we want to be true to the, to the actual evidence, we need to have a nuanced understanding of the various different paths that one can become competent. But we have to understand that there are paths and you have to take those paths in order to become competent to do those kinds of therapies. Also, we should not fight with each other as we figure this out. There's no reason why we all have to... In my head, it's like Black Friday, you know, and all of us are running into the Kmart trying to grab all the clients. And, you know, it's unbecoming. We should work together because there's enough clients to go around. And when we work together, I think we make not only our profession better, but all individuals within the profession, I think, benefit and particularly the public. You know, there's enough fighting in the world already. Why do we need to add to it, right? All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Thank you.